How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to 19-Year-Old Shrink. Today's topic is about child sex abuse and really just abuse in general. We have an incredible guest, Tessa Torrance Newman, stepdaughter of Kurt Newman, lead singer of the Bodines, who experienced this abuse for seven years from ages nine to 16. Usually for my episodes, I like to tie in some humor into each episode and appeal to a college-like references, but today's episode will not be like that. If you have anyone around that shouldn't be listening to a serious topic like this, I advise you to go into a different room or something of that nature. But sexual abuse is a real problem, and I'm still in the process of educating myself on these issues. One of the big things that society does is deny that these events really even happen. Someone might approach another person in confidence saying this happened, but the other person might not believe them. And what Tessa will provide for you is understanding the psychology behind the grooming process and why these things unfortunately are very real. And you might think these issues only exist in those poor neighborhoods where addiction or other problems might exist. But for Tessa, this was not the case. She grew up in a nice neighborhood, went to private school, and unfortunately was the victim of this terrible abuse. And I think it's incredible that she and others have the bravery to share about this because I've had people very close to me where we're laughing, having a good time, just being kids. And in the next moment, they sit me down and tell me this has happened to them. And in that moment, things become very real. We're no longer kids just having a good time. I'm looking into their eyes, they're looking into mine, and I'm seeing a person that's lost, sad, and scared. And I broke down during these moments. And normally, if I put out a podcast about mental health and self-development, it pits off this idea that I'm aware of how to handle these situations. But in those moments, I was lost. And I didn't even experience it. But I'm forever grateful that these people like Tessa have gained the courage to speak about this. I'd like to welcome an incredible guest to the show, Tessa Torrance Newman, who, as mentioned, is a survivor of sexual abuse. And we'll discuss her experience with it as a young child and how she had the strength to get to where she is today. This is in no way an easy topic to talk about. But first off, I want to thank you, Tessa, for having trust in me to learn about your experience and also for inspiring others to speak out about these issues. By you speaking out, you show others that they have the power to do the same thing. So thanks for joining. And I'd love to you know, start off with just hearing more about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to thank you really quick for inviting me on your show. Because when you reached out, I thought it was so amazing that a 19-year-old male wanted to have this discussion. So I would just thank you for what you're doing to bring these conversations to your peers. I think it's awesome. Thank you. Um, so I'll start kind of at the beginning because I think for people who have been there, it'll help them understand. And I think for people who haven't been there, it'll help them to understand. So my family, when I was very young, was kind of destabilized at its core. When I was seven, my parents got divorced and my dad, my biological father, ultimately abandoned us, me and my three siblings and my mom. (laughs) And um, I mean, our life just completely changed in an instant. And we ended up moving to Texas from Minnesota in with my stepdad, who founded a band called the Bodines. They were a big national touring band and still are. And our lives went from being in a place where we were in private schools and our parents and, and events and all these things. And they were focused around us and they kind of changed into being 
a very different lifestyle. My stepdad didn't have kids. He was a touring musician. And so we were thrown into kind of this rock and roll world, but also my mom teetering on bringing us to shows and stuff and trying to be a family in that way, but also going to school and those things. And so probably in trying to do it the right way, (laughs) it wasn't necessarily done the right way. And, and I think that can, I think that can happen. A lot of times people ask questions of how could this happen? Things are destabilized and people try their best to make them work, but it doesn't mean things were perfect. You spoke to it a little bit earlier about, you know, how your mom wanted you to like kind of have that experience, but also keeping it normal. Cause I think that's really interesting how she really not sheltered, but like wanted to keep that, um, keep your life like innocent and things like that. So if you could speak a little bit more to that, because I thought that was really interesting um, because, you know, some people might think that you were brought up in a bad environment for this to happen, but that wasn't the case for you. Right. Yeah. It's so true. My mom was the mom. She was like the nineties Ralph Lauren mom who put us <laughs> in the best schools and and doted on us and drove across town to multiple different schools when her kids were different ages and just made her life about her kids. But when our dad left, he spiraled into addiction and into the affair he was having and all those things and just just was never to be seen or heard from again, really. And so for her, then in her next relationship, she was trying to shelter us. It was, you were at school and you had a nanny or she was with us. And then there were times where she also had to make her new relationship work and be on the road and things. And so she tried to balance it the best that she could. And I know that she did, but when your family is destabilized, it just changes your life and it opens you up for predators to take advantage of that as well. Yeah. Going off of that, I know that your perpetrator was someone in your father's band, someone who grew up with them, correct? Yes. Yeah. I grew up with them and was very close to your parents. Um, so yeah. did this immediately start happening when you went on the road? And what was like that grooming process like? Obviously speak to however comfortable you are, just so others can kind of know the signs and, you know, watch out for it if this were ever to be happening for them. Sure. You know, as you said, my stepdad and his bandmate grew up together. That's that's how long they knew each other. And I think everyone at first thought it was like an uncle figure. And so when he took special interest, it was in the family, right? That's what it seemed like. And like he felt bad for what I had gone through and there was no other thought in it. And it was very strategic. I didn't know what the grooming process was then. I do now. And so I can see how textbook it was where at first it was coming and finding me, you know, sitting somewhere and just having a discussion or sitting a little closer, you know, next to me 
And then it was taking interest in asking me about myself, things that would seem very benign, really, until it began. The little friendly hugs and then the trying to get me away from my parents in a way where there were other people around, but I would be with him without my parents. And then escalating. It was a slow process of that working up to the things that eventually would happen. The, the kissing and the touching and the, the other things beyond that. Obviously, I imagine like being a nine-year-old, this is really confusing for you. And especially when it's someone so like closely associated with your parents, like it's kind of like there's like a credibility probably that you probably yeah. perceived so right. what was your perception of what was going on when he started escalating this? You know, I always say that's a, for some reason a hard question to put myself back in being a child mm-hmm. and thinking, what was I thinking? It's, it's hard to put your finger on. I always say, like, I know some part of me must have known that something was wrong because I didn't tell. (laughs) But I also don't remember that feeling. You know, I thought this was my best friend at at a point in time in my life. I thought this was, you know, one of the only people I could depend on, one of the only people who understood me. And part of that stemmed from the fact that in the early conversations, he would come to me and say, no one in your family understands you, but I do because you're you're bad and I'm bad too. And so it was groomed into me a thought of that this was the person that I could depend on in some weird way from day one. Also, like being an adult, that probably had an influence on you because you look like a lot of people look up to adults oh, in yeah. that way. So I think that was definitely difficult. Well, well. Yeah. And outside of being just an adult, you think of this was my parents' business partner. This was an adult. This was a person that was seen as an uncle, but also this was a person who was adored by tons of people. He and my dad were playing in front of 20,000 people some nights that all adored them. And I think there's something to be said about that. You know, we often in society put people on this pedestal for, for their success or their, or their fame, but it's not always that they are the best people. And going back to that grooming process and those initial, you know, things that he did, I was listening to one of your podcast episodes on the strong podcast that we'll go into later on, but you guys were talking about the idea that when, you know, you're being groomed, when the victim's being groomed, it's not only the victim being groomed, it's everyone in that environment, everyone related to the victim. So in what ways was your perpetrator grooming like your family and friends? Well, that's a great question. I mentioned one way being that it was that slow process of getting me away from my family, but where other people were around to try to make it seem normalized, right? To be with him away from my parents. Another way that he groomed my family was with the thought of this is an uncle relationship. You know, he would say to my parents all the time, 
I care about you. You're like my brother. You're right. That slow brainwashing of this couldn't be possible because this person's like my brother, right? I've known this person forever. So it wouldn't enter into your mind. And I think my parents in some ways felt bad that, you know, I had lost my biological father and, and we had left our family behind when we moved, you know, grandparents and things like that. And I think when they thought that there was some uncle figure who wanted to pay attention to me and, and take me under his wing, so to speak, they just, they believed it. It sounds like there was a lot of guilt, correct me if I'm wrong, like that he was putting on them. And also you mentioned again in your previous episodes that you felt like guilt. And I think that's really interesting how like you're in no way doing anything like wrong. Like you're a nine-year-old kid. Yeah. What, what is there for you to feel guilty about? But it's totally understandable that that's the case. But can you explain that for people why you felt guilt in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. I think often survivors can feel complicit. I think, I think there's a lot to it. I know for me, even to be blunt, I remember feeling like my first sexual arousal with my abuser. And I talked to my therapist about that. And he was like, you know, that's very common. And he said, when males are sexually abused, they can get an erection and their abuser will often use their erection against them to say, see, you like it too. So if this is wrong, you're wrong too, (laughs) kind of. And that those are the ways that make us feel complicit. And it's, it's never a survivor's fault. (laughs) It is never a victim's fault, but we can get into a place of thinking we're bad. And with my abuser, he would point blank say to me, you're a bad seed, but so am I. So we're like each other. It's hard to like understand that that like that that happens. And also when this is going on, do you have siblings? I do. I have six siblings. Gotcha. Were they ever aware that this was going on? Um, were you the only person that like was receiving this abuse? I was the only one. And, and no, one, no one was aware until I, I came forward to my parents after my abuser left the band. Gotcha. And also, I wanted to ask you, and this is no way an indictment of your parents or anything like that. This is just to kind of get your perspective of what you were feeling in this moment, because again, they're very close with him. And I'm sure it was really hard to believe that anything was going on, but did you ever blame your parents for not maybe knowing what was going on in that moment? You know, I, I never have. And I think, I think it's an interesting, interesting thing because I think everyone deals with things, how they have to deal with them. But I think when you heal, you come to a place of holding who's accountable accountable, which is my abuser. Do I do I wish it wouldn't have happened? Duh, of course, of course. Yeah. But I but I can't live my life having blame 
or 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 bad feelings towards anyone other than the person who's responsible for it happening. And also, did you feel isolated from your support group? Who were who would you say like your support group was during this time? Like how was that feeling when you were experiencing this? I didn't have a support group um, when I was experiencing this because life was out of control. You know, I, I went into the mode of isolation and I had already been kind of isolated. And, you know, for instance, I know you started this podcast because of the isolation you were feeling in COVID. Yeah. And, and those mental health aspects and stuff. And I think COVID really can give everyone in the world a little glimpse into what survivors or people dealing with mental health struggles deal with kind of all the time when they're in that, because you're completely isolated. You don't really have anyone to see or to turn to. And that's, and I'm sure you'll ask about this later, but that's why when the situation with drugs happened, I think I went running back and running back because you, all you have is the lowest common denominator, but you, what you don't realize is they're grooming you and setting you up for abuse too. And I think that what you talked about with like isolation, I've seen like people that I really care about come up to me and tell me that this type of stuff has happened to them. Um, mm-hmm. Not from an adult, but from sure. obviously from people their age, but you know, they experienced uh, looked like a lot of isolation and, you know, they didn't really feel like they had a support group at that time. Um, so, you know, that definitely makes sense that you were struggling to experience that. And also, were you having trouble trusting adults after this event? Because I think that's a big one too. Like adults are people that we, you know, like to look up to, like I look up to, you know, my dad and my mom, like, was it tough transitioning to that in that environment? Because I would imagine it would probably be very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I had trouble with adults and, and I started getting in trouble in, in school. And the problem is most people see probably acting out as just a means for get rid of this person, get this person out of here, whatever. And so I was in trouble a lot in school suddenly and no one, no one looked at it for a deeper issue. It was just that I was a problem. Going back to what we talked about earlier about you grew up in such a, it seems like a normal environment and you were like yeah. innocent that, and I think it's important for people to recognize that again, like sometimes this happens and it's like scary. So just being able to be aware that that no one's like excluded from these issues in real life. Even if we don't think it's happening, like we could see a perfectly nice neighborhood and think, oh, it's totally safe or nothing bad happens, you know, for 18 years of our life growing up in the area. So we might just think that's the case for every single person. And Absolutely. It's not. And it's not. And because I grew up in like, an, like, I grew up in an area where I had my parents who did the same thing that your parents did cared about me, made sure that I was, you know, safe. There could be someone down the street from me experiencing, you know, what you had to experience. And thanks again for being so brave about that. Um, Thank you. But I want to go back to, you mentioned that we touch on like yourself medicating. I wanted to ask you about your initial experience with it. 
however comfortable you feel. I know it's like a very emotional topic, especially your, your initial experience. Um, but I think it's important for other people to understand how these might start and that it's not always the person's fault getting into like drugs. So if you could speak a little bit to that. Of course. So two girls, when I was about 12 years old, uh, befriended me at this very G-rated event that I would go to to hang out with friends. It was put on in a school, actually. And um, these girls befriended me. And what I didn't know at the time, but I later knew, is that their older boyfriends were heroin dealers. And at one point, we were at this event. I hadn't done drugs. Drugs were completely off the table, not okay. (laughs) But I was at this event and I remember taking a drink of my soda. And uh, next thing I knew, I was just completely out of control. I was like going down and I went to the restroom. Next thing I know, these girls are above me. They're saying, clench your fist, clench your fist. And they were shooting me up with heroin. And they overdosed me and they drug me into a bathroom, locked the door. And um, it was tough. It was, it was really ugly what happened in that bathroom, really scary. And I was, I was lucky enough that eventually a friend found me and, and drug me out of the bathroom into a car and to their house or I don't know what would have happened necessarily again I was 12 years old and you know it's hard stuff and and after that I would become addicted to heroin at 12 and I think when you hear that story, you go, why would anyone in their right mind go back, <laughs> right? Why would you go back? Why would you ever touch that again? I think though it shows how lonely and how isolated I was and how much I just wanted to kill the pain. I mean, just, and what a lot of people don't know at that point in time is that drugs only bring you more pain, <laughs> The stuff that comes with it makes your life go about as low as your life could possibly go. But that's how they, that's how they get you. Thank you so much for sharing. That's not easy to talk about. And I think what you just said also is that like, sometimes you're doing it out of the right intention. And again, you're 12 years old. You're doing it out of the right intention because you're all around you, you see all this negative things happening. And this is still while you're experiencing that abuse um, from your dad's bandmate. And you were just looking for options to help. Um, But again, you mentioned, why would anyone ever go back to it? And I wanted to ask you, so when you became addicted to substances, um, in your experience, what were you seeking for it to provide for you? Was it to suppress anger? Was it to suppress that feeling that it might've been like all your fault, like that guilt that you were experiencing and maybe anger towards yourself, or was it all of these factors kind of mix into one? Honestly, and I don't think I speak about it this openly usually, but I think I just wanted the world to stop. (laughs) 
thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Because it's also difficult to really know have an answer to that question. Because um, yeah. again, you were so young. How did you end up getting to that place where you became sober? And you know what brought you the strength to do that? Um, because you just said you wanted the world to end. So that's pretty drastic. Like I talk about on the show all the time, people struggle with situations where they're really emotionally rooted in it. And like, those are the situations that stick with you, your, your life. Um, but how were you able to, you know, take those really high intensity situations and be able to heal yourself and become sober? Because I can't imagine that was easy to do. Yeah. I think for me, eventually it felt like life or death a lot happened. And, and I really think that most people have to hit an absolute rock bottom to make a change. The drug dealers that targeted me, they, they groomed me in this way because they were setting me up to be exploited. And these people are also, yeah, it's the grooming process again. And so my life took a real turn for the worst at a very young age. <laughs> And at some point, you just go, maybe I want to live. <laughs> and, and so I chose, I chose that. And were your parents ever like aware of this going on? Because I know you said you were acting up at school or you were really struggling there. Did they ever get any signs that, you know, this was happening? Like, how did you go about that? So it's interesting. No, the answer is no. And all the signs were probably there, but I don't think they ever thought it could happen in their household. I don't really think any of us would assume that our 12-year-old sibling or something is on heroin. Mm -hmm. That's not the world we generally live in. And we hush these conversations and people aren't really learning that, hey, this happens. And so my parents, you know, did know that I was getting in trouble at school and stuff, but I think they thought it was rebellion and and hurting from, you know, the destabilization that had happened and all those things, they were aware. And my parents, my mom never really blamed me for the situations. You know what I mean? She, my mom is a very like unconditional love kind of person, but eventually it did get really bad and I had to leave school and all that kind of stuff. But they weren't really aware of the core of a lot of the problems. Were you getting any professional help like therapy or were there any other programs that were helping you out during this time? Because I know your parents didn't recognize that this was happening. So it might've been difficult for you to do that. So if you could just fill me in there. No, at this point in time, I, I didn't have any resources. My parents didn't know the extent of what was going on. I probably wasn't even open to those resources if they were there in a way. And again, I was young. I didn't even know the extent of resources probably that there were. And so when I kicked heroin, it was alone. 
locked in my bedroom. I, it wasn't in rehab. It wasn't therapists and, and Annette. It was, it was different probably than how most people do it. I think also though, you being able to recognize at such a young age, when you hit rock bottom and you had those issues, like you were able to get out of it yourself. And like, that's obviously it's good to talk to people about it professionally, but you were able to do that. Although you were still struggling, you recognize, you know, I needed to do this in order for me to live and in order for me to live a better life at such yeah. a young age. Um, and no, not too many people for years after that will have to make that decision, but you ended up making such a strong decision. And also another decision that you made going back to your abuser, um, because that's probably where a lot of the drug issues started because you were already feeling that lack in your life and abuse going back to that strength. So when was that moment where that abuse stopped and you recognized you were able to go past it? Yeah. So, um, when I was, I think, 15, my abuser offered me money for sex in my parents' kitchen. And I remember it really devastated me. I mean, I remember being appalled and disgusted and so hurt. And I think there was probably more to the psychology of that even than what's just kind of on its face. Remember, I thought my abuser cared about me and we were best friends. And now he's offering me money for sex and making me feel just like a product of exploitation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I had already been down that path of people trying to exploit me. It hurt me so much. And from there, it was just like, a flip switched. And I think leading up to it at that point in time too, there were times where he started to say to me, well, what do you know? You're just a kid. <laughs> and I would think, you know, I would have those little moments of clarity or epiphanies like, well, if I'm just a kid, <laughs> why is this the relationship? You know, why are you treating me this way? And then saying, I'm just a kid. It was like, wait a second. stop the car but so then when money for sex thing happened yeah it was just devastating and he went to my parents and he said you know he went to my mom and he was like Tessa won't talk to me she's mad at me can you do something about it and at that point in time that was the first time my mom would know anything because she came to me and she said why why won't you talk to you know this person and what's going on And I just said, I remember we were in the car and we were talking and I said to my mom, well, because he offered me money for sex, all the money in his pocket for sex in your kitchen. And, and it was like, wait, what? They didn't know anything that had led up to that. And so it was like, so confusing to my mom. 40 year old asking at the time you were 15, 16 for money for sex. Like that's crazy. And how was your dad? Cause again, they grew up together. They went to high school together. When you finally told him about it, how was he handling this? Because obviously that's like the scariest thing for a parent to hear is that that Mm -hmm. happened to their child. 
How did you respond? So at this point in time, when I told my mom, we didn't tell my dad, my stepdad. My mom went to my abuser's girlfriend, the mother of his child, and said, I can't wrap my head around this. You know, like my mom was like, I'm just battling this. I can't wrap my head around like what's going on. It sounds bad, but I think in her mind, it was like, she believed me, but it was like, did this happen? Is this a joke? Is this real? Like, you know, she was just trying to like combat this in her mind of what is going on, keeping in mind that she didn't have any of the other information. Um, And so she went to his girlfriend, like, what's going on? And she said, oh, you know how his sense of humor is. I'm sure it was some kind of joke or something or something misconstrued. Yet this is the music business. (laughs) It's, It's an exploitative industry. But then she ended the conversation with saying to my mom, but keep her away from him because he looks at her the way he used to look at me. And I remember just like weighing on my mom, that conversation. And it's hard to know, but I, but I wouldn't come out to them about the abuse for years after that. With your mom, I know she was hesitant to tell your dad and you were probably scared for your dad to find out. What was her reasoning behind that? Because I know obviously they were very close friends. Um, So if you can just speak more to that. Yeah. So first of all, you have to keep in mind that this was like this isolated incident that no one could make sense of um, and was scary. I think this was a partnership that everyone depended on. And, you know, I don't know her exact reasoning, but I think no one wanted something to explode and it probably would have. My stepdad and my abuser, their relationship was spanned a long time. They were like brothers, but they also fought like brothers with egos, like rock stars, you know, and things could get ugly point blank. And so my mom made changes to how she did things and to access and things like that. Based on this one tiny piece of information she was trying to kind of dig through, but she wouldn't know, neither of my parents would know until after my abuser left the band years later, the extent of what happened. And also when you went public about this, after your, both your parents knew after your abuser left the band, you were getting trashed and people didn't really believe you. I think this is like a very important point to talk about. Why do you yeah. think people are so unwilling to believe these things happen? Yeah. Well, so I want to start by saying that when I spoke out publicly to the media about what happened, This was something I thought I was going to take to my grave outside of at that point, my parents and some close friends or relationships. There were people that knew, but it was something I thought generally I was going to take to the grave. And the media caught wind of the abuse via Facebook, a fight on Facebook that I wasn't actually a part of. And so the media came to me 
and said, you know, do you have any comment about this? And I had to really struggle with what to do because I was scared and I was also pregnant. I was on a different part of my life where I just wanted peace and I didn't really know what it entailed. I mean, it was hard. I ended up sitting down for like 10 hours of interviews about something that I was trying to leave in the past, but I had to do it. I had to do it for myself. I had to do it for other people. And at that point in time, my abuser also went on kind of this campaign against me and my family preemptively trying to discredit me so that when this time came, people could point to all these reasons to not believe me. And that's what predators often do. When the article came out, I got so I mean, I got death threats. I got tons of hate online. I was afraid. I was afraid to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> like, like literally media was coming after me to talk with them. And I just made this decision at that point in time of like, that it was so painful coming forward that I just wanted to go away from it all. I wanted to go back to my white picket fence life and have my second child and focus on my blessings and all the things that I overcame that could all be in the past. (laughs) That's how I ended up feeling. And then I at some point realized that I had started to focus on the people who didn't believe me, which were the enablers, the people who were enabling my perpetrator. And I had to let that go. And a woman named Rhonda, she was a a singer in Milwaukee where my abuser's from. And she had been a victim of sexual abuse as a child. And in her circumstance, when she came public about this family member of hers, everyone in the Milwaukee music scene rallied around her. She was a survivor and they believed her. And so when I came out and she heard all this hate so widespread in this community about me, she was the only person really who stepped up and said, wait a minute, if you believe me, you have to believe her. You don't get it both ways. But people wanted to maintain the status quo. They wanted to believe that my abuser was this amazing musician that got them through their hard times or whatever they wanted to believe they had to discredit me. And they used parts of my past that came out in the article. You know, it was suddenly she's this drug addict making this up for money. I never pressed charge. You know, I was never after anything. I never pressed charges. I was many years sober having a family. It hurt. But when Rhonda came up with the hashtag, I believe Tessa, that became trending on social media, where people came out then in support of me, it made me realize that importance of spreading belief of survivors. It it made me realize that little bits of light can outweigh 
that darkness that's coming at you. That's what you're doing now. I mean, with your podcast, which we'll get into in just a little bit, but a couple of things I picked apart from what you just said is you had a past that was so negative and you chose to kind of live in that like future mindset. Like you want the picket yeah. fence and you have that. Now. That's not to say that your past is completely gone and it's not still with you in some respect, because I don't want to discount that. But you definitely, that's something that not a lot of people can do. A lot of people get hung up on the past for like little things. I could say I do too. Um, But I think that that's really important. Also, you had a lot of people who were trashing on you and all it took was one person for you. You focused your attention to that one person who was actually believing in you. And that probably wasn't easy as well, because you have all these other people saying that what you're saying is a lie. Um, all these things are wrong, what you've been you know, putting out there, but you chose to focus on that one thing. And again, like focus is like the biggest thing and where you put your energy. So that's so great to hear. And from there, a lot more people just started showing their support with the, I believe Tessa. And I think you're wearing a shirt that says, I believe Tessa, right? I am. I'm like, Love can it. you see it? Can you see it well yep. enough? I believe I can Tessa. See it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's awesome. And I want to fast forward to your life now. Cause you have like a great husband, you have great kids. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to ask was how was that transition from like dating after, you know, this all happened? Was there any difficulties with that? Yeah. I've, you know, healing, learning, that's all a long journey. I've worked a long time in my, you know, not super long life to be on this healing journey, which is every day. And when I first started dating again, late into my teens, listen, ladies who are listening, college ladies that are listening, all that, I chose the worst men. (laughs) I did. I was broken. I chose the worst men. And I, it would take me forever to see that they weren't serious. And, and it was all about fun. It, it was the worst. Actually, it was sad. It was, it was sad again going into that like dating pool, especially because the people I date were dating were like musicians and you know all these people that sometimes are are equally or more so broken than you are. And I didn't really value myself at that point in time. I didn't know probably what love was. I didn't know what love was. I know what it is now. But for a long time, I finally was like, you know what? I'm done. (laughs) I'm not dating. I'm not doing the. I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to release my music. I'm going to do all this stuff. And I did. I did. And I did great things. But it wasn't until I grew a life with my husband and my kids that I was like, oh, wow, this is what love is. When you are with someone where, yeah, there's ups and downs in relationships, but you support each other 100%. You work together for a better life. And my husband was the only man who showed me that kind of unconditional love and that you can have a relationship that's not based on exploitation. That's great to hear, to hear that you got exactly you know, what you were looking for. 
Um, and it's understandable that you're having those like troubles like early on with dating and everything like that. When I was going to ask you, like, what qualities did you see in your husband that were different from those people that you were dating? Before, but um, you answered that. And I can tell, like, when we hopped on the call today, I was like, you were just smiling. You were having a good time. And like, I was like, that's that's unbelievable. Like, you know, that you have the ability to do that. And you also talked about, you know, your music. And I, I'd love to hear about the different things that you've been working on that have given you that fulfillment in your life. Yeah. So, well, I'm a person who always needs an artistic outlet. <laughs> it can be any kind of art, but I need it or I can't function. And so I actually started writing songs when I was coming out of all the abuse, like age 16. And I ended up eventually being signed to Downtown Music Publishing, the nation's largest independent music publisher in my early 20s where I wrote songs with award-winning songwriters and producers and I released an album with a Sony Red imprint um, it was a rock record I always wanted to make a rock record and I did yeah. <laughs> um, and that was a collaboration with my stepdad that record is just the two of us and from there I kind of set aside music when I started having kids and got married and I was going to focus on being a full-time mom, which I am, <laughs> but now I own you know, two companies. One is a rental village. It's fairy tale themed near Houston. And I, um, I grew the little eight home rental village into a really booming company in under a year with no marketing. It's something I'm like super proud of. And then I own Utopian Villas of Texas, which is a modular tiny home manufacturer in the Texas Hill Country. Beautiful high-end tiny homes. And then on top of that, I use my voice to help the voiceless, so to speak. I have Strong Podcast. And on Strong, we really just focus in on what we're doing right now, mm -hmm. someone, you know, people who have overcome adversity kind of in order to spread hope and lift social and mental health stigmas, because the truth is abuse thrives in silence. And it's the cycle that we keep going, keep with to feel safe and to keep up with the status quo. But I have this theory <laughs> that if more people and more people in high profile positions and things we're willing to just be candid about the things that they've gone through we could create a space in the world where we had more empathy and compassion when we talked about these things and we could make them conversations that people were more ready to hear because if your heroes have experienced these things <laughs> it's okay if you have too and so i just hope to change the world for survivors so they don't feel so isolated i love your platform because it kind of says all the things that other people are sometimes too afraid to say or are, are, are always thinking but they never really put yeah. it out there and i think like a problem shared is a problem half that's what my dad always says i mean you being able to do that is just incredible and just to think you were like i wanted to go to the grave with this like i never mm -hmm. wanted to bring this up with anyone 
but you've been able to turn that into being able to help and inspire other people, which I think is incredible because there's so much about like life that it's, there's a lot of focus on like getting that next like internship or the next job or like, you know, yeah. the nine to five and just always like grinding and doing stuff like that. But like taking the time to recognize like these issues are real and surrounding mental health and being able to capitalize on them and having people like yourself spread the word so that other people have the power to do the same thing is just really great. And I just thank you so much, Tessa. And I just wanted to ask you if you have any more final thoughts. I don't want to keep you for too long, but if you have any more final things that you'd like to share with the audience. You know, I just want people to know that they can come from anywhere. They can come from the darkest tragedies and there's hope for them and that they can rebuild their life and not just survive, but do things that they probably never dreamed that they could do. (laughs) They can do it. And I think I'm proof of that. I want people to just have hope for change because it's possible. And I appreciate you and what you're doing. Like I said, male at your age, wanting to have these conversations, shed this light, share it with your peers. Because apparently, according to my younger sisters, I'm old now. Like 29 (laughs) is old. (laughs) No, but really. So for you to be spreading a message like this to people your age is is so appreciated where i'm coming from i appreciate that and obviously we want people to get in touch with you learn more about you so where would be the best platforms i know you mentioned your podcast so what would be the best way to reach out to you social media sure so i'm mainly on instagram and my instagram is tessa torrance newman strong and you can find me on my website which is tessatorrensnewman.com and our podcast is available on any listening platform just search hot pie media strong and yeah i hope people check it out and we have a lot of great interviews with people trying to raise awareness and thank you again tessa and really just your voice and being able to, you know, have the trust in me to ask you these questions and learn from you because I'm still learning about this stuff as well. But I hope you guys took a lot away from this and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Take care, everyone.